Um, if anyone sees it, I left my Bible on a chair, and I don't know where it went. So if someone sees it, it'd be great. I could use it in a few minutes. I'll make do with the, with the Bible that's up here. But oh yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Thanks. Uh, Father God, we are cognizant of the fact that we are uh, nearing uh, a, the end of another election cycle, another never-ending election cycle. We, uh, we place this in your hands. We trust you, God. We know uh, that you set up kings and you, dis- and you depose them. Uh, that we know that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so we, we put even this, our, our, our democracy, our, our government, our elections, local, state, federal, we put them in your hands, and we trust you, and we know that you are king over all. You are sovereign over all. And we can trust you with whatever the result is. And we have, we have no fear. And we confess, though, sometimes we do have fear. Forgive us for that, Father. Strengthen us by your Spirit that, that we should not live in any fear. Because we know who holds the future. And we know who will reign. But we do pray, Father, for justice. And we pray for peace. And we pray that um, though our uh, nation is trepidatious and there are concerns and fears as we go to the polls, that we pray for safety. We pray for security. We pray for calm hearts. And we pray for as much as we can have a spirit of unity in this world, as fleeting and as uh, shallow as it can be, we pray for it, Father, because we know that in peace and in security and in good governance, there is the flourishing of human life. And in the flourishing of human life, there is space for your gospel and the salvation of souls. And so we pray for that. We pray too, Father, for the Brazilian elections going on today. Father, we are cognizant of the fact that we are not the only nation on earth. We are not the only country that votes. And so we pray, Father, even as they have a very contentious election, that you would allow peace to reign there. We pray for especially your church in Brazil, that they would be models of what it means to be citizens of heaven first and citizens of a nation on earth second. Whatever the results of their election at the end of today or whenever they calculate their votes, that they would be champions of peace and that they would demonstrate a, an ability to uh, love Christ and his kingdom first and yet show deference to the rulers that you have set up in this world. Father, we pray also for the nation of Somalia this morning. We, we pray, Father, we pray out of the compassion of our hearts for the safety and effectiveness of aid workers there. And it's such a dangerous place for them to work. And we pray especially for the effectiveness of the Christian aid workers there, that they might be able to show compassion and love and mercy on a people with so many desperate needs. Also make it a space for the gospel to go out through their work. Father, we pray for the gospel to flourish there. We pray for the crimes and the horrendous evils that are 
uh, committed on a regular basis there uh, to be brought to an end by the gospel of peace. We pray, Father, for the women who uh, face enormous uh, threats of, of rape and mutilation. We pray for the children who face uh, tremendous rates of human trafficking. We pray, Father, that a gospel movement would arise that changes hearts, that makes such actions unthinkable. And we pray for those women and those children trapped in those situations now, that you would give them a hope and a peace that passes understanding through the gospel. Father, we pray for your word to go out in Somalia. We pray that your Bibles would get to Somalia. We are thankful, God, that it is available in the languages of the people there, but we pray, Father, that it can actually be distributed there. We pray that you would bring down any uh, institutional or governmental or social forces that prohibit the distribution and sale of your word in Somalia. And we pray that your your word would be flooded throughout that nation so that by your word, people might be made alive. For it is always by your word that you make a people for yourself. We pray that your word would do that for us today, that it would cut us to the heart, transform us, that those who are dead might be quickened to life, and that those of us who have grown sleepy might be awakened. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, turn with me to First uh, Samuel 13. We're going to be in the back half of that uh, chapter. And again, if you've been following along, we are working our way through the book of First Samuel. We'll be there through the fall and the spring. Then we're doing something different. Short passage this morning. They won't all be short. We had a couple of short ones here, though, for you. Then we're going to throw you off. By the way, just a reminder, on the connections table back there, there's a card of all the upcoming sermons, whether they're the ones I'm preaching or not. just encourage you, grab one of those, follow along, read the passages before you arrive. 16 through 23. And Saul and Jonathan... His son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, where the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Afra in the land, or to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear, found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, 
And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. The highest grossing film in 1986, beat myself a little bit. I was still young, though. Maybe that still dates me. Uh, the highest grossing film in 1986 was the original Top Gun, starring, of course, Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, fighter pilots doing fighter pilot things at high speeds with some epic shots mixed in there, some sort of obligatory will-they-won't-they they romance, a bromance, a bit of a redemption arc. But if you've seen it, let's face it, the movie is about the action sequences. As legendary film critic Roger Ebert concluded his two-and-a-half-star review of the film, after duly praising the highs of some of those action sequences, he wrote, look out for the scenes where the people talk to one another. <laughs> it wasn't a great movie. Good? Sure. It had its strengths. But not great. But we'll shell out millions of dollars for good action sequences and a hero, even if the underlying story isn't all that great, isn't it? I loved reading Roger Ebert's uh, film reviews. He died uh, tragically in 2013. He was the first film critic to receive a Pulitzer Prize, and, and it's obvious why. He could sum up a movie and, and tell you why it was great, or in his words, why it sucked, without giving away a lick of the suspense. And if you already knew the movie, you felt like you knew the movie better by reading his reviews, and if you didn't, you knew if you wanted to watch it. Uh, for me, I generally found that if Roger liked it, I probably did too. Toward the end of his career, he published a list of what he called the great movies. And these weren't just the four-star reviews. These were the best of the best four-star reviews. And there were lots of surprises in there, uh, alongside with some of the probably expected classics, like the Casablancas. It's not true about all the films by these stretch, but there's something that's much more common on the great films list than on the top-grossing films list which is how many films have dark or sad or unsettled or ambiguous endings. You know, some writers and directors just don't feel it's necessary to give us a happy, a happy ending and a soaring score as we exit the theater. Whether it's Otto Schindler's lamenting his inability to do more at the end of Schindler's List or the, the mystical alien experience of Dave Bowman at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey or the, the whispered words of Bob to Charlotte at the end of Lost in Translation. We're, we're more prone to contemplative silence than high fives in some of those movies. But that's a bit more like real life, isn't it? And, and the little snapshots of our real lives, there aren't always easy heroes and villains. There isn't always clear resolution there aren't always neatly tied up packages with bows to, to wrap things up and present them for us. And, and that's kind of what we get in 1 Samuel 13, 16-23. In, in drawing the lines where we have them for this morning's passage, we get a story that ends in a very unsettled way. There, there's no closure here. And even if we jumped ahead, and you'll see next week, we really have to come at this situation from a totally different angle to get any sort of resolution. 
And, and even then, well, I'm not going to spoil that for you. So let's set the stage and remember the situation. We're going to set the stage, we're going to remember the situation. And at that point, I think we're going to be able to see the main idea here in this passage, the big picture. And once we have the big picture, we're going to pivot. And I think we're going to be able to see ourselves in the story and maybe a, a hidden counterpoint for us to consider. Maybe even a hint of a counter-narrative for us to consider. So that's my outline for you to follow along. So we're going to set the stage. We're going to remember the situation. Then we're going to see the main idea. And we're going to pivot, see ourselves in the story, and find a hidden counterpoint. So let's begin by setting the stage. At the beginning of chapter 13, King Saul is coming off a massive military victory. He had an army of 3,000 men, and that's after he sent a whole bunch of men back to their homes because he apparently deemed that he had enough of an army. But by the end of verse 15 of chapter 13, after recruiting for new soldiers from all across Israel to come and help him fight, he's actually down to just 600 men. And that is entirely, as far as we know, without a fight. The losses are all from fear and cowardice, not the battlefield. So when we pick up in verse 16, Saul has led his few men back and rejoined his son. They had previously been split up into two companies of soldiers. And verse 16 says, And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin with the Philistines encamped in Michmash. So that's the battle line. I'm going to pull up just a, a couple maps for you here. Um, just because I know that sometimes this stuff is, is hard to kind of visualize. So it's just a quick picture. There's the, you know, sort of the Mediterranean world that we're in. I'm just going to zoom in ever so quickly and get it zoom in on Israel and kind of zoom in on that specific area there. Um, just kind of help you visualize this a second. Our translation says that Saul and Jonathan are at Geba. And, and some other translations and that map up there have them at Gebeah, not Geba. Gebeah, not Geba. And the, and the difference is, is whether they're at the capital city and Saul's hometown, that's Gebeah, or the city that Jonathan attacked earlier in the chapter, that's Geba. Very similar. It doesn't really matter much for the point of the story. If you're curious about the difference between the two, you can ask me later. We'll talk. I tend to think that Gebeah is probably right, but doesn't matter. It's not the point. But if you hear me say Gebeah, and you're thinking, didn't it just say Geba in the text? That's why. Michmash is the city where Saul had been stationed, where he had been with his 2,000 troops. He had 2,000, Jonathan had 1,000. But after Jonathan's victory at Geba, the Philistines brought an enormous army to Michmash, and Saul either fled or he took a loss in battle. We don't know. We're not told. You might be able to see it on the map, though, that Michmash is strategically located. It keeps the capital city to the south, Gebeah, away from the resources of the rest of Israel to the north. 
And in verses 17 through 18, we see that the Philistines are using that strategic position well. It says, and waiters came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. Actually, you can kind of see those three lines there uh, in, in the map. And yeah, we have a pretty decent idea where those routes would have been. Those three companies effectively secure all the roads in and out of the region. So they are cutting King Saul off from the rest of the kingdom and possible reinforcements. But notice they're doing it with raiding parties. Ra raiding parties were, were probably a bit like terrorism. Small groups of soldiers would go off into this town or that village. They're not attacking other soldiers. They're going into places where there's just civilians. And they're stealing the resources. They're stealing the supplies. Probably with great deals of violence at times. Who knows, committing what sorts of atrocities while they're at it. And then bringing those things back to the main encampment. And so in that way, the Philistines would be resupplied without having to wait for uh, supply line reinforcements. They would probably also get some nice creature comforts, which might not always be available in times of war. It also likely would have had the benefit of weakening the economic and physical strength of the people of Israel to fight back, to say nothing about their psychological strength after living in fear of these random atrocities. And there's something else that they're probably using these writing parties for, at least in part. So look at verse 19. It says, Now there's no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Let the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. So <clears throat> the Philistines were also effectively using their position to control the ancient Palestinian metallurgic industrial complex. The events of 1 Samuel are really taking place right around the transition from what we, used, what we sometimes call the Bronze Age to what we sometimes call the Iron Age in ancient Palestine. And one thing we, we know from archaeology is the Philistines seem to have figured out the iron thing pretty quickly. Maybe Israel's still playing kind of catch-up at this time, but it seems like the Philistines are they're doing way more than just blocking the iron trade. That, that word blacksmith probably referred to anyone working with metal. And it would have made it really, really hard for the Israelites. Militarily, of course, the goal was no weapons. If you can disarm your enemy, or a potential enemy, that's a great move. It's a time-tested military strategy. But the Philistines take it even further. Probably by using those same raiding parties, they effectively wiped out the metalworking trade so that even to sharpen or repair a farm tool, like a sickle or an axe, required going to a Philistine town or, or encampment where the Israelite was being price gouged for the privilege of doing business. It's hard to take ancient prices like this, like a third of a shekel, two-thirds of a shekel, and say, oh, oh, that, that's $20. It, there's a certain point in time where inflation and monetary values just stop working. But you can guess that this was a very high price. This year, we, we learned what happens when, when one part of the 
agricultural costs goes up, right? When, when oil prices went up this year, gas prices went up. And what do we use gas for a lot? On our farms. So what went up when gas prices went up? All of our agricultural products, food prices went up because oil went up. So just like that, you can imagine back then, if tools cost a lot more, what do you think that did to the barley prices, to the grape prices, to the olive prices that year? They surely went up. Or if the shepherds, if their sheep shears cost more to sharpen, what did that do to the price of wool? Or if they didn't have to raise their prices, then that simply meant the families made less profit and had less to spend themselves. But either way, the people were having their goods and money stolen by raiding parties, which made it harder, no doubt, to pay for things in the first place. And we might imagine that times became tough very quickly for the Israelites. Food probably became scarce. Children probably went hungry. Disease and famine probably became more common in certain areas. This would have been a very dark time. This was truly oppression. Physically, economically, psychologically, these people were being tried. And we might imagine that even social bonds were beginning to fracture. It would have been a dark time for the Israelites who were supposed to be God's special people. They probably didn't look very special. But we're left in this passage to focus on these two competing camps of armies. And at Gebeah we read, so on the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So the Philistines had done their job. 600 men, and only the richest two, I assume the richest two, the king and the king's son, had any weapons to speak of. Now, just because they didn't have any bronze-tipped spears or iron swords didn't mean they were entirely without weapons. They would have had clubs. They would have had wooden spears, slings, arrows, maybe with flint heads, all possible weapons. But to say that they were at a technological disadvantage would be a severe understatement. A few miles north at Michmash, we can go back to verse 5, at the beginning of chapter 13, to be reminded what the Philistines had. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And those chariots, by the way, were two-man chariots. They needed a driver and an archer. That's how they, they worked. One man drove the chariot while another man stood in the back and shot arrows out. Filthy deadly. And then we read in 23, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. The geography of this area is hills upon hills upon hills upon hills. And, and those hills are cut up by dry riverbeds called wadis. And as long as those stayed dry, they were a much better means of travel since you didn't have to go up and down all day long. So that's where you would, that's where your paths were. That's where you, where you travel. It's how sometimes we know where they're, 
pathways and roads were. Most of those ran east-west, but, but there is one pretty more or less north or south way out of Michmash. That would have been the pass of Michmash that they're talking about. And so, essentially what's going on here is that the Philistines are moving south toward the capital at Gebeah, and they're staging themselves for a standoff. And so that's where the passage ends. The Israelites are cut off from resources. They're cut off from their neighbors. They're cut off from their friends. They're cut off from their fellow citizens. They're cut off from supplies. They're cut off from hope. So let's remember how things got here. If you've not been here, I hope you stick around. You can get caught up with this, by the way. We're working through this book. Like I said, next week we'll start in on uh, the first part of chapter 14. And if you're an average reader, you can read all of 1 Samuel up to that point in a little over 30 minutes. If you're below average, call an hour. It's not much. If you have been here, maybe you know where this is going, but maybe not. The back backstory here is that Israel wanted a king because they didn't trust God to lead them. And God gave them a king under the pretenses that that king would govern under God's rule. So that king would be under God. And the man God chose was Saul, son of Kish. But right away, Saul was inconsistent. He was an inconsistent fellow. And and we weren't sure what to make of him. Yet, he eventually seemed to come into his own, and he leads this massive military victory against the enemy of God's people that led to the Israelites rallying around him and, and worshiping God. And then at the top of chapter 13, his popularity had grown so much that he was turning away voluntary recruits, and he divided his army into two camps between him and his son. And then his son led a military campaign over a Philistine garrison at Geba, And things started to change rapidly. The Israelites had many thorns in their side during this time period, but the Philistines were probably the biggest. So this was a big deal to have this military victory over the Philistines, but it caused the Philistines to get really mad. And they regroup, and they amass this enormous army that we mentioned in retaliation, and they bring it to the very site of Saul's troops. Again, whether they actually fought or whether Saul just saw that army coming and immediately retreated, we don't know. But Saul headed for Gilgal. We talked about that two weeks ago. Previously to all of this, when Saul had originally been named king by God's prophet, a man named Samuel, he had been given explicit instructions that a day would come, an unknown day would come when he would be in Gilgal. And when that day came, he was supposed to wait exactly a week for Samuel, the prophet, to come and meet him. And when Samuel joined him in Gilgal, Samuel said he would offer sacrifices to God and he would give the king prophetic instructions about what God wanted him to do. Well, in chapter 13, Saul waited the seven days. He didn't see Samuel show up right away. He saw the soldiers getting scared by the threat of the Philistine army. 
And he took matters into his own hand. He disobeyed God's command. He offered the sacrifices himself. And as soon as he finished, the prophet Samuel showed up. And not only did Samuel not offer sacrifices, King Saul had already done that. He turned around and left without giving him any instructions from God. And as we talked about two weeks ago, it's as if God's word had been taken from King Saul. Saul was left without revelation, without a message from God. And so he was left in Gilgal alone with his rapidly diminishing troops. That's how we got here. Saul was given a revelation from God. He was given God's word about what he should do in Gilgal. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but back then God's word was not conveniently placed in your pocket or your hotel desk drawer. If you wanted to hear from God, you needed to be a prophet, you needed to be part of the priestly caste, or a king, or you needed to know one. The prophet received messages from God. The priests and the king were supposed to know God's law. In the days before the printing presses, they were at least supposed to be familiar with God's laws and responsible to teach it, especially the priests. The king was supposed to handwrite his own copy of God's law so that he could study it his entire life. Sadly, there's no record that Saul ever did that. But kings were also sent God's prophets so that they could hear messages from God and govern wisely and govern well under God's rule. So Saul had that going for him for a very short season. And Samuel had given Saul these instructions from God, and Saul rejected those instructions, thinking that he knew a way to please God that was just as good or better than what God had revealed. In fact, what what Saul was doing was rejecting God, and so God rejected Saul as king. And when Saul, uh, excuse me, when Samuel turned his back on Saul at Gilgal and left without giving him any further instructions. It was symbolic of the word of God departing from Saul's life forever. What we just read in the back half of chapter 13 then is what life looks like without revelation without God's word, without God in our lives. And frankly, it looks hopeless. That's how the Apostle Paul described it in his letter to the Christians living in and around the city of Ephesus a couple thousand years later. thousand years later. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, Paul writes this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope without God in the world. There's a lot to unpack there. Sermon in itself. But the, the church that Paul was, was writing to was a, was a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. Non-Jews, that's what a Gentile is. And Paul took a moment to speak to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles directly. He calls them Gentiles in the flesh because as far as Paul was concerned, these are just human labels. These are the labels of the world. These, these ethnic markers are not important categories in God's economy. And he wants to remind them of a time before they were Christians, a time when they could be described as being separated from Christ. And they weren't connected to God's people in any way. They weren't connected to the ancient promises that God had made to his people. And most damning, they were without hope, without God in the world. I take those to be basically synonymous. To be without God in this world is to be without hope. To be without God is to be without hope. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be hopeful, but it means that a person without God has no good and legitimate reason for hope. Maybe you know a person who is always very optimistic or very cheerful, but has a tendency to not take stock of their situation very seriously. And such a person can easily find themselves in a bad or even hopeless situation, but just is oblivious to it. You know that person. If you don't know that person, it's you. Um, and never, So they, they remain hopeful and cheerful and optimistic, even though the world is crashing down around them. Not because there is hope, but because they're illogical or they are naive. That's a different matter altogether. What I'm suggesting here, what I'm suggesting that Scripture is saying, is that without a true and accurate knowledge of God and a connection to Him, you have no legitimate grounds for hope. So even if you feel hopeful, you are, in fact, without hope. You are hopeless, even though you feel hopeful. That might sound harsh. And I don't mean it to be. I really don't. But I sincerely believe it to be true. And if it's true, and if I'm right about it being true, and if you're hopeless, that would be cruel not to share that with you, wouldn't it? It would be important to know that your situation is desperate, wouldn't it? It would be important to know that you are without hope right? That you are very much in need, that is something that you need to know. Especially if you are carrying on like that's not the case. If you're carrying on like you do have hope, but you in fact don't have hope, that's something you need to be aware of. Without God, we are hopeless. That's the big idea. That's where the Israelites find themselves. King Saul has abandoned God, and he has found himself in a hopeless situation. And frankly, most of Israel has abandoned God several chapters before. Saul was a hope for Israel, but now he has fallen short. 
And at this point, it seems that all hope is at loss. I think if we see ourselves in the story, here's the pivot. If we see ourselves in the story in 1 Samuel 13, 16 through 23, maybe our hopelessness without God becomes a little more clear. When we read the Old Testament, anywhere in the Bible, but especially the Old Testament, where it's not as obvious, those of us who are Christians should ask, where is Jesus in this passage? Where is Jesus? Where's God? And, and how does this passage point us to Jesus? That's how Jesus taught us to read the Bible. It's how he, he taught his disciples on the road to Emmaus to read the Old Testament. He, he showed them how all of the scriptures pointed to him. And the fact that this passage gives us so absolutely little to go on. There's no mention of God. There's no clear pointers to Jesus. I think that's a big reason why we feel so much hopelessness in this passage and why this passage leaves us with so much ambiguity. Usually, once we can find Jesus in the passage, it's, easiest, it's easy to see ourselves in the passage, in the same way that it's much easier to find a lost item once you shine a bright light on it. We are revealed in the light of Jesus. But maybe we don't have that easy light here. So where are we in this passage? Well, we're with the Israelites, aren't we? At this point in the story, we don't know who they really are anymore. They're supposed to be God's people, but they've rejected God as their king. They probably call themselves God's people. They probably still think of themselves as God's people. They would attach that label. If they lived today, they would call themselves Christians. They lived back then, they would say they're Yahwists. They, they worship Yahweh. But that's not how God sees them, is it? They've rejected God. And God's perspective is more important than our perspective. So who are they? They've rejected God as their king. They don't trust God to fight their battles. And so they're cowering in fear. They're crossing into other territories to hide from the enemy. They're generally abandoning their king. Maybe some of us particularly associate with King Saul, though. We know we have heard God's word. Maybe we grew up going to church or hearing parents or grandparents read the Bible to us. Maybe a, a friend diligently prayed for us and pleaded with us. Maybe we heard a message about Jesus once that we just knew we should do something about in our lives, but we, we didn't. And now it seems like life is empty of God's word. And even God himself. And maybe things have gone a bit off the rails. And maybe we can see even how our choices to ignore God have caused so many others around us to suffer, just like Saul's choices caused the Israelites to suffer. 
And we can feel the consequences of those choices. We are, we are left powerless. Uh, for the Israelites, these, these wars they're fighting, they were really spiritual wars. Christians don't fight like wars like these. I feel like in 2022, we need to say that very clearly. We can't and we shouldn't. We don't have the same type of mandate. But I don't want to go into that. It's a long discussion in several hours. So let me just say that clearly. Christians should not be setting up nations and conquering territories. Okay, Things are different this side of the cross. But for Israel, these battles had a spiritual dimension. They weren't just about land and borders. They were about the worship of God and whether that worship would continue or not. And the existence of these other nations in the land that God had given Israel became a constant source of temptation to sin against God or, or even to reject God and to worship false gods instead. And so instead of abiding by the good and just laws of Yahweh, the true God, they might start, and they did start, trying to live by the perverse and corrupt laws of Molech or Dagon or Baal, or any number of false religions. Even sometimes claiming to worship Yahweh, but ascribing to Yahweh all the characteristics of false gods. How about that? In the same way, when we reject God, we become spiritually impotent. We don't have the weapons of spiritual warfare necessary to fight against temptations toward evil. In the first chapter of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul describes what happens when people reject the truth about God. He says it inevitably leads to corrupt worship. And corrupt worship leads to corrupt desires. And corrupt desires leads to corrupt lives. Here's how he put it. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, idols. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Corrupt religion leads to corrupt desires, leads to corrupt living. And so when we are without God, we do not have the spiritual weaponry to fight against those temptations, and we are inevitably given over to our corruption. The Israelites had another problem, of course. The weight of this situation was robbing them. Raiding parties from the enemy were literally stealing what was valuable to them. And then the Philistines used their position of strength to financially cripple the Israelites. And so this is another truth. Sin steals from you. Sin steals from you. Not only does the rejection of God leave us spiritually impotent, which is a recipe for giving way to corruption and sin, which is rebellion against God's rule. It's, it's doing the things that, that God has, that displease God, that are against his character and heart. Worse than that, it, it, our sinful desires end up stealing from us. They promise us much, but they take much more. One of the most famous Bible verses in the New Testament is Romans 6.23, where, where Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. It's such a potent phrase. It's such a vivid picture. Sin, like an employer hiring day laborers, pays out the wages that sin promised. He pays in full. He pays on time. And his payment is death. Which doesn't feel so much like a payment, does it? It feels more like a theft. Death feels like a robbery of my life, not an extension of it. That doesn't add anything to me. That takes something from me. But that's the way it is with sin. Sin steals. So when you're struggling to satisfy your desire for things in this world, even good things, but things which maybe you have gotten a little out of place, you can find yourself in sort of a never-ending struggle to keep up. Imagine the Israelite farmer who needed to sharpen his plow only to find that the cost to his enemy to do so was enormous. And then he comes home and he begins to plow, but as he waits for the harvest, a raiding party comes through, depriving him and his family of much of their savings, their store of food for the season. And they begin to ration what food they have left to make it until harvest, but they're getting weak in their waiting. And as harvest comes around, they're hungry. And then the farmer begins to do his work, but the sky breaks, and he, and he hardly has the money left to pay the rates of the Philistines. His old friend Jacob, back in town, knows how to do some smithing, but he's terrified of the enemy, and he won't go back to work. That's how everyone feels. 
So no one will dare sharpen the tool. And so the farmer is forced to go back to the Philistines and spend his last shekels to get his tools for harvest. And he finishes the harvest, but the price he fetches for his crop is so little, it's only enough to get him enough money to fix his tools and replenish just enough of his stores to get through to the next year. He's not making any headway. He doesn't replenish any of his storehouse. He feels like he's working just to pay the Philistines for the privilege of working. And maybe you feel similarly, that you're just exerting yourself for the privilege of exerting yourself. That can be a good indication that you're living for the desires of this world and not for the desires of the world to come. Because that's how our desires and how our sin can be. Like sometimes all we're living for is the things in this world and it's just a cycle we, get, we work to get money to buy stuff, and then we need to work to maintain it and to get new stuff when it breaks, and it's a never-ending cycle, and it feels like we're stuck in a senseless loop. And what are we really living for? What are we actually doing it for? Haven't we all felt that frustrating cycle of being stuck in our own way by our own desires, by our own sin? And maybe we know all too well that it started with us turning our back on God. I want to suggest that there's a, a, a hidden counterpoint in this passage, or maybe even a counter-narrative, or the beginnings of one. Narrative might be too strong of a word, but there's at least a hint of a narrative that exists. There's a story that could be told, a story that might be sto- told, a story that's right on the cusp of being told, but it's not told yet. The Apostle Paul also wrote something to those Christians living in Rome, speaking of the Old Testament, speaking of passages like 1 Samuel 13, 16 through 23. Paul wrote this in Romans 15, 4. He said, for whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He said passages like this one are for our instruction so that we might have hope. Well, it's kind of funny because it's such a hopeless passage. So where's the hope? Well, let me suggest that it's hidden right there in verse 22. So on the day of battle, right? On the, on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. Well, that's not very hopeful. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. That's a but. That's a contrast. Well, okay, so that's two men. Maybe. But remember what Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 32. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up. Remember, it is the Lord God who fights the battle, not men. And so, even then, the weapons are not important. 
But there are two figures who are at least superficially prepared to go into battle against the Philistines. There had been 3,000. No idea where all their weapons went. That's an interesting question. Where did they lose all the weapons? They should have had at least 3,000. But, but two held on. Two kept them at the ready. Two were at least superficially prepared for a battle with the Philistines. Saul and Jonathan. One of those men is king. He had led a significant military battle against the kingdom of Ammon. But he's also neglected to fight the Philistines at least once, maybe twice, maybe thrice, depending on how you want to read it. And he's now been rejected by God as king. That does not seem very hopeful. The other man is a prince. He led the charge against the Philistines earlier in this chapter. In fact, he led the charge against the Philistines when his father neglected to. And he was victorious. We don't know anything else about this man yet, but he stands out, and he makes us wonder, could he be different? Maybe he is a cause for hope. He certainly is at least a nugget that maybe not all hope is lost. What we can be sure of is that the cause for hope is not in Jonathan per se. The cause for hope would be whether Jonathan can do what his father could not do. Put his trust in God. Because God does not rescue the strong. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Why? Because the meek have nowhere else to turn but God. God doesn't rescue the strong. He rescues the faithful. He rescues those who are weak enough to trust in him, who know and believe that he is the only true king. If you've turned your back on God, at any point. If you've been trying to make out the good path in life on your own terms, apart from God, apart from his good and wise laws, maybe you're feeling the hopelessness of it. I hope you do. I, I really hope you do, because that's at least reality. That's reality. You should feel hopeless. But you know what I don't want you to do? I don't want you to despair. There's a difference between hopelessness and despair. Unchecked hopelessness leads to despair, but I want to offer you a check on your hopelessness. Just as there's a spark of hope in 1 Samuel 13, there is a glaring, beaming ray of hope into your story. Because where you have been unfaithful, and where I have been unfaithful, Jesus Christ has been faithful. He came to do what we didn't do. He came to do what I didn't do. He lived among us, God among humans. But when he was tempted by the corruption of this world, like I have been, like you have been, he remained true. He remained faithful. And so remember how we said the wages of sin is death? Well, Jesus never worked a minute in his life for sin. And so sin didn't owe him a dime. 
and he could live forever. But that's not what happened, though, is it? I trust you know at least that much of the story that Jesus died on a cross. Why? Because he wasn't dying for his own sin like you would or like I would. He was dying for the sins of others. He took sin's payment, death, on our behalf. So by Christ's faithfulness, those of us who are unfaithful can receive forgiveness and eternal life and hope by placing our faith in him, in Christ. Now that is a hope we would love to speak with you much more deeply about because it is true hope. It is hope from all your spinning in circles, from all your past failures and mistakes, the ones that haunt you most deeply. There is hope in the midst of that. So speak to me. Speak, speak to any one of the Connections team members. You got the, they have the badge on. You know, mark it on a Connections card. Email us. Reach out. Let's talk because there is hope. And Christian, those of you who are already followers of this Christ, remember, when you stumble, when you're caught, when you're trapped, There is a king who has already gone before us, who didn't retreat, but has already won the battle. And he is ready to reach in and pull you back out. Let's pray. Father, we pray. Uh, We pray for King Jesus to pull us out. Grab us by your spirit and pull us out of our sin cycles. Father, for those who are trapped in the love of sin and love of this world, Father, would you show them the hope that is in Christ. Show them the hopelessness of the path that they're on. Give them a clear view of the reality of their situation so that they can see clearly the hope that they can have in Christ. May those of us who know him never cease to look upward and take his hand. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing our praises again to this God.